0: Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel, thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trubiana and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you already know how much I love and appreciate every single one of you. And just thank you so much for all your love and support. And I can't thank you guys enough for the raise in followers that I've seen recently. It's amazing. Since I hit 5,000, I'm all the way up to, I think, 6.1 already, and I haven't even put videos out. I can't express how much that means to me, guys, and just know that I love you guys so much, and also that I will be doing another giveaway for 10K, so you can look forward to that. As soon as I hit that 10K, we're doing another giveaway. So I just wanted to say a quick thank you for you guys putting up with my bullshit recently. I've had such a scattered presence lately and it's legit been like a month since I put a video out, but my follower count keeps going up. So I appreciate you guys sticking in there and even when I'm not posting, you not unfollowing me. I told you in my last video that I had a surgery coming up and I had that surgery and everything went fine, no more damage, no long-term damage, no nothing. But I immediately went into an FET cycle That's something to do with the IVF that I've been doing. If you've been following my I want a baby process, you know that the last transfer that I did failed. So it's a pretty big deal to start another one. I said I would give it one last chance and then I would start exploring other avenues like surrogacy or adoption or something. So this is that one last chance. So right now, I'm in a frozen embryo transfer month, and that means that at the end of this month, literally the end, like I have an appointment set for the 31st, I'll have a frozen embryo transferred into me, and hopefully it will take and make me pregnant. Since the first transfer didn't work, I have two embryos being transferred this time. We're hoping at least one will take. I'm also doing antibiotics and steroids this time. So it's a whole different transfer cycle. And I'm doing the progesterone shots. And that goes on for 12 weeks, which is a freaking nightmare because those needles are gigantic. So let's all cross our fingers and hope for a good outcome. I know that I'm going to be crossing my fingers and toes and everything. And if I do get pregnant, we'll go through the process together. I'll be sharing everything with you guys. So as far as my channel goes, I think I've made a decision. The three part video that I did on Anastasia, I really loved doing that. Like that was probably my favorite video to record. I know that there was so much info on him and it felt like it was all I was talking about for a long time. But you know what? People like Albert Anastasia and so do I. So I had so much fun digging into like every single crevice of his life. I just liked it a lot more than I would have researching three different gangsters for those three weeks. So I've decided that I'm going to continue doing the part one, part two, part three, part four episodes And that's what we have tonight. Part one of one of the gangsters that I really loved growing up. I can't wait to get into this with you guys. I'm so excited. So anyways, what else has been going on with my life? Oh, I have my kitchen that's almost done. It's absolutely amazing to see. I don't really want to put up pictures because I want to do a reveal when it's completed, but it's in progress. It's almost done and I'm so excited. My bathroom is officially mostly completed. The only thing I have left to do in there is to put up some molding, but most of it is done. The shower is done and oh my God, my shower is heavily. I absolutely love it. Like, I have never loved a shower the way that I love my shower. It's amazing. As soon as the molding is up, I'll do before and after pictures for the bathroom. I don't know if I want to do before and after pictures for my kitchen, because it was really bad before, and it's, like, kind of embarrassing to be like, oh, yeah, this is how I used to live. But if I do put up before and after pictures, it'll just be more of, like, a do you see why i needed to get it done so badly and this is why i had the motivation to go out and spend the asinine amounts of money that i did thankfully the guy that did my construction is somebody that i've known since like i was a kid i was like 18 years old my ex my best friend the one that was murdered he used to work for this guy so when he died he was living in his house well i dated him billy not the guy that's doing the construction, I dated my ex, Billy, for almost six years. So I obviously hung out with his boss a lot, and I hung out with his friends a lot, and this guy was both a boss and a friend. Not that it's, like, really relevant, but it makes me feel a lot more comfortable about having him and his guys in my house, because, like, let me tell you, with this whole PTSD thing I got going on, men do not enter my house, period. So... It makes me feel a lot better. I'm happy to have somebody that I know, and it just, it all worked out really well. Couldn't ask for better. So yeah, I've just been recovering from surgery, getting ready for the frozen embryo transfer, and dealing with the construction that's been my life lately. Not much else to report. To be perfectly honest, depression has had a pretty serious hold on me. Like, I have not wanted to get out of bed. I have not wanted to do anything. And that's probably why it's been so long since I've made a video. Like the surgery didn't put me out of commission. It's not like I couldn't get out of bed. I could, I just didn't. But I'm so excited to be here making another video. I swear, I feel like my life is incomplete when I'm on a hiatus and not making videos. Because if I'm perfectly honest, this is probably one of the few things that I really enjoy doing with my life. So let's go ahead and get started and get into the episode. John Persico Jr. was born in Brooklyn, New York. He was born on August 8, 1933, to his parents Carmine John Persico Sr. and Assunta Susan Plantamura. Carmine Persico Sr. and Assunta Plantamura were both Italian immigrants. Carmine Persico Sr. was born in Solmona, Italy, and he immigrated to the United States in 1911. Assunta Plantamura was born in 1913 in Casino, Italy, and she came to the United States at a young age. It's not really clarified exactly when, but she was young. That means that Carmine Persico is not Sicilian. Solmona is dead in the center of Italy. It's closer to Rome than Palermo. And while Casino is more south than Solmona, it's closer to Naples and pretty far off still from Sicily. And that is always spoken about in this kind of history. So, I mean, it matters. It matters that he's not Sicilian. Carmine Persico Jr. grew up in New York City, in the borough of Brooklyn, in Park Slope and Red Hook, which at the time had a pretty large population of Italian and Irish immigrant workers. Carmine's father, Carmine Persico Sr., worked as a legal stenographer for a few different law firms in Manhattan. So like picture the people that could type like a million miles a minute, that's legal stenographers or any kind of stenographers. Unlike a lot of other mafiosi that we see on this channel, the Persico boys did not grow up in poverty. Their father's profession let them live really comfortable lives and they didn't really want or need for anything. They weren't rich. And that's probably why they wanted to go into the mafia so bad, because even the poorest mafia member plays it off like they're rich. So everybody looks at these mafia guys and they're just like so enthralled. But it's a point that they weren't poor because a lot of times you see these guys getting roped into the mafia because of poverty. They're just trying to pay the bills. They're just trying to put food on the table. But that's not what led these boys into it. Carmine's mother, Asunta, known to her friends by Susan, was described by her friends as a very strong-willed woman and she tried to maintain a very strict control over her children. Susan Persigo played a significant role in the upbringing of her four children, Carmine, Alphonse, who was his older brother, Theodore, who was his younger brother, and Dolores, who was his sister. Growing up in the Carroll Gardens and Red Hook sections of Brooklyn, New York, Carmine Persico and his siblings were raised in a household where their mother exerted a tight reign over them. And sometimes when you come from such a strict upbringing, that causes you to go a little crazy. I don't think that's what this was, because we see things going on at such a young age for Carmine that there's no way that they had like these strict strict rules so while i think that she had control over the home i don't think it was to the point that like she actually had control she just tried to show that she did she really didn't though It's pretty normal for Italian mothers to have control over their family. It's always the mom chasing the kids around with the wooden spoon and maintaining the discipline. The dad's main role in like upbringing with the children is like, listen to your mother or I'll break your head. And like the mom saying, oh, just wait until your dad comes home and the kid's getting scared. Really? Like that's just typical Italian childhood. In the 1940s, South Brooklyn had developed into a stronghold for organized crime. It presented a lot of challenges to living there. The area became known for its prevalence of criminal activity and was a magnet for gangsters. Every movie you see about gangsters, at least some of it is filmed in South Brooklyn. It's just every single one because it's such a hotbed. Many young individuals in the area would become enticed by the allure and glamour of these tough-talking mafiosi who would just always be outside like storefronts and they just hung out. They were a very big part of the community. These clubs served as meeting places for various criminal organizations that would operate within the neighborhood and everybody in the neighborhood knew who these guys were and that they were in the mafia. Among the many youths that would be attracted to the world of organized crime from a very young age were all of the Persico brothers. Alphonse, Carmine, and Theodore, all of them were just obsessed with the Mafia. According to court records, all three brothers joined the ranks of the Mafia at a very young age. They all became involved in the criminal underworld that dominated South Brooklyn at the time. It's just, they just fell right into it from a very young age. I've seen it mentioned multiple times that Carmine Persico's one and only dream in his entire life was to run the Mafia. He had a short stint of running the Garfield boys before they broke up and went their separate ways, but the day that he ascended to boss of the Colombo family would probably have been the best day of his entire life even if it was lived inside of a jail cell. But that's like way ahead of where we are. Don't worry, we'll, we'll get there, but that's not where we are yet. Theodore Persico and Alphonse Alleyboy Persico, in addition to being members of the mafia, eventually rose to the position of capos within the Colombo crime family as well. So they all stayed in the Colombo family. As capos, they held significant authority and leadership roles within the family's criminal organization. Carmine would go on to be the boss of the family, and he would be a person who held that title for one of the longest stretches in Mafia history. At the age of 16 years old, Carmine Persico made the decision to drop out of high school. He felt like his talents were better suited for the streets, because even in high school, he had already been running the streets. So like, he's just like, he knows what he wants out of life. What is going to school going to do for him? It's not going to help him in his Mafia career. During his time in school, he had already established himself as a leader within the Garfield Boys. And no, he didn't create the Garfield Boys. A lot of places say that he created them. No, he didn't. He just joined and then he ranked up and became the leader. The Garfield Boys were a notorious street gang in Brooklyn, New York, and they were well known to be like younger. They're like junior mafia. They're not actually mafia, but they're where a lot of mafia people would get their soldiers from. Picture it like ROTC for the army, or like the services, it's the same thing as these little street gangs, and the Garfield Boys was a main one. Persico's involvement with that gang demonstrated his early immersion into a life of crime and street culture. He had some affiliation with the South Brooklyn Boys, which was a gang that was known to be a successor of the Garfield Boys. But to be honest, I think that you'll come to agree with me that Persico doesn't really have much loyalty to any one person or group. So I could totally see him being fully involved with the Garfield Boys and the South Brooklyn Boys. In March of 1951, when Persico was 17 years old, he was arrested in Brooklyn's Prospect Park on charges of fatally beating another kid. That means beating him to death. I gotta say, growing up, I was in love with Carmine Persico. I loved that boy. He was such a cutie in those pictures when he was 17 years old. Like, look at his freaking face. Look at that face. I would have eaten this boy alive if we had gone to the same school like I promise I know that because even in school he was a little gangster and let's just say that's exactly the kind of crowd that I hung out with I was a sucker for the bad boys and like the worse they were the more I fell in love I loved Those boys who were like in and out of juvie and doing crimes, getting arrested at school. The boy I spent most of my life in love with when I was young, like young, young. He's done more time inside jail than outside of it, I think. Thank God I kicked the habit of chasing around bad boys when I got older. Because like I could not be with a dude that's in jail. Like that's a hell no for me. So Carmine, he's known in high school for like going around and shaking kids down for their lunch money. He is involved in crimes from a very young age, and everybody in school knows that. He has a reputation. He would go around and, like, when other people were committing crimes, he would be a lookout. He would go out and do car robberies, stealing car parts, robbing houses, like, you know, all the things that, like, these young little New York thugs are known for doing. They all rob houses. They rob cars. It's just, like, a thing that New York boys are known for. He was arrested when he was 17 years old, but the actual murder took place when he was only 15 or 16 years old. It looks like there was two situations that both played out around the same time, so let's go over them both. So first of all, when you research this stuff or like when you research anything about Carmine Persago, what you're going to find is a very, very generic story of him being arrested when he was 17 years old regarding a gang war between his gang, the Garfield Boys, and another gang, the Tigers. The narrative that I've read everywhere else is that the fight was at Prospect Park in a boathouse and the fight was like as basic as you could get. It was over a girl. This fight left one teen dead with a bullet hole and one wounded with multiple stab wounds. Now, at first, when I heard the story that I'm about to tell you about, I'm like, okay, this is super weird because the media got it so wrong. Like, it's completely wrong. And it doesn't make any sense because usually the media gets things wrong, but not so wrong that it's not even like a little bit similar. So I'm like, what the hell is going on? How did they get it so wrong? So let's go through this first murder, and then I'll tell you what happened at the end. So Carmine and Alphonse Persico, let's call him Al, as all of his friends do, were coming home from the movies. A car rolls up on them as they're about to walk into their front door, and three kids pop out of the car and shoot Carmine, catching him twice in the leg. So he, like, catches one bullet to the right leg, one bullet to the left leg. When this is reported, Carmine is reported as a former member of the South Brooklyn Boys, and it's reported that the two dudes in the stolen car were sitting at the house waiting for the Persico Boys to come home. The stolen car was recovered after the dudes who stole it crashed in front of 666 Carroll Street, which I just think is like the funniest thing ever, because like you crashed in front of 666, get it? 666, devil's number. So the car was stolen from Mary Carozo and she lived at 322 Carroll Street. The Persico boys lived at 637 Carroll Street. So they crashed in front of 666 Carroll Street. They probably grabbed it from Carozo's house because she lives nearby. At first, I was kind of thinking, like, oh, maybe they stole it from, like, their aunt or their grandmother. Because it just seemed like they kind of were trying to return the car. But they get this car from 322 Carroll Street. They hit the person goes at 637 Carroll Street. They speed off and then they crash in front of 666 Carroll Street. So this all happens on a one block radius. So now Carmine comes out and he's like, I know who came after me. I know who tried to kill me. But police, they disagree with him. They think that it's a member of the South Brooklyn gang because he had left the gang, according to Carmine and Al, because Al, who's 21 years old at the time, told police that he was trying to keep Carmine out of the gangster life. And that he had brought him to the movies because that's where they they were coming home from the movies when they were walking into the house. Now, Al turns around to the police and he's like, yeah, he's been in this like organized crime life. He's a kid. He's only like 17 years old at this time. And I'm trying to keep him out of that life. So like I brought him to the movies to distract him and like keep him busy, give him something to do as like a part of this rehabilitation program that I created and I'm carrying out. I'm going to keep this boy off the streets. So now, looking back at it now, more likely that wasn't true. Because, like, Al ended up as a capo in the Colombo family. So he probably wasn't trying to, like, steer him in a better direction. But, like, who knows? Who knows what was going on? Maybe Al was trying to keep him out of it. And then, like, he was like, oh, my brother's in this. I have to go in it. Who knows what the hell happened? So because Al tells police this, now police are convinced that it's the South Brooklyn boys who are trying to send a message of, like, you can't walk away from the gang. Because Al tells police, hey, I'm getting him out of the South Brooklyn boys. I've been doing this to keep him out of it. And now police are like, oh, it must be the South Brooklyn boys attacking Carmine to tell him, you can't get out of this life. The police only know that Persigo was in the South Brooklyn boys because they had rounded him up with about 50 other young kids the prior year in regards to a different murder. So they knew his association through that. Like, his name came up and they were like, Carmine Persigo, we know that name. So now this is all reported in the paper in January of 1951. So a month goes by, Carmine's back on his feet, he's recovering from the two bullet wounds to his legs, and him... Al and a man named Steve Bove and two other men leave the bar together. They all get into one of those two men's car. His name is Anthony Grillo. Grillo is a horse jockey who was at the bar and he ended up being like, oh, hey, I have a car. I'll drive you guys. And all of the guys pile into Grillo's car. From what I'm seeing, it doesn't look like Grillo was a gangster. I think this was like a wrong place, wrong time kind of thing, because this boy gets wrapped up in way more than he can handle. I don't know what made him say like, oh, hey, we'll take my car. I don't know. So they all leave the bar together along with two other men. So we've got five men, Al and Carmine Persico, Stephen Bove, Anthony Grillo, and another guy named John Tranquilino. John Tranquilino is just kind of like there. There's really no consequence of him being there, but that's the fifth person in the car. We're not going to talk about him again. So shortly after they left, police receive an anonymous 911 call saying they got him at the south side of Carroll Street near Nevins. Go pick him up. You'll find him there. When police show up to the location that the anonymous caller sent them to, they found the body of Stephen Bove face down in the gutter. He had been shot five times in the head and neck. They report that it appeared that he was shot elsewhere and that his body had been dumped at this location afterwards, because like when you get shot somewhere, there's blood and there just wasn't what you would expect to see from a crime scene. It's clear that this crime happened somewhere else and then the body was dumped there. Stephen Bove, a dock worker, was a convict with three prior arrests, one of them being for felonious assault. And let me tell you something, for assault to turn felonious is freaking wild. You have to do a lot to get assault to turn felonious. You don't just beat someone up and get felonious assault. You have to beat them, like, within an inch of their life. It's absolutely crazy. You see charges all the time of, like, assault in the first degree, assault in the second degree. But you don't see felonious assault very often. So now they've got a dead body. They know it's Stephen Bove. So they're doing this whole research, and they're trying to figure out who killed this guy. And they come to find out that he had been at the bar and had left in the car with Carmine and Al in Grillo's car. So they go to Grillo, and they're like, uh, hey man, what's up? Why'd you kill this dude? Grillo folds like a newspaper, and he's like, well, I was driving, but I didn't do it. He tells police that he doesn't know who actually fired the shot, but that it was Al who took the body out of the car and dumped it on the street. He also tells them that Al was the one that tossed the handgun into the canal. He gives police the exact coordinates to where he tossed it, and lo and behold, we have a murder weapon, folks. Carmen is arrested for the murder, but he's soon released on $50,000 bail as a material witness against the actual intended target that the police actually believe committed the crime, Al Persico. So now Al goes, like, all the way underground and he ends up coming out and he's brought to trial for murder one. Grillo, who is known as the Blue Beetle, testifies that he saw Al kill Bovi in cold blood. He testified that five of them got into the car. And let me stop here real quick and say that this is so freaking weird. Like this dude is 28 years old. What the hell are you doing riding around Brooklyn with a 17 year old child? You freaking weirdo, like very strange. Anyway, Grillo testifies that they got into the car after getting like shoe wasted at the bar and that Bovee sat next to him. He says that Al shot him, he heard a noise, turned, and saw that Al kept shooting him even after Bovee was slumped over. He testified that Al told him, drive where I tell you or I'll kill you too. He tells the jury that Al instructed him to get rid of the body, but that he refused to and he would not touch the body. He says that Al got out of the car and threw the body into the gutter, and that as they crossed the bridge, Al threw the gun into the Gowanus Canal. Al Persigo cops a plea and takes a murder two charge in order to stay off death row. Now, Al had gone on the run for a year. He was nowhere to be found, so this trial is a year after the crime. The only reason that Al came back was because they were holding Carmine, on a witness bail and he was being held in jail for something he didn't do for $50,000 bail. No one was going to put a $50,000 bail up for this kid. So they're holding him in jail pretty much to get Al to come out. So now this is a year later. Al goes to court. He is sentenced. He It's this big trial. And then like halfway through the trial, he just cops out. And everyone's like, wait, we had this big trial going on. What the hell? But he cops out and he receives a sentence of 20 years to life in prison due to the plea that he copped. He asked to delay sentencing by a month because his wife was due to give birth at that time, and it was within the month, which is just, like, the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, that's, oh, it's so sad. Before Carmine was shot in the leg and everything went crazy, they were actually good friends with Bovi. Because now, when Carmine was shot in the leg, he told police officers that it was Bovi that shot him. Now, that is why everything blew up with Bovey. That's why Bovey was killed, because Carmine believes that when he got shot in the legs, that it was Bovey that shot him. But before Carmine got shot, Al and Bovey were really good friends. Grillo doesn't just walk away, though. You don't get to just get yourself involved in mafia affairs like this, turn around, flip and walk away scot-free. Like, absolutely not. No. He lost his license to be a horse jockey, so now he can't work. He eventually ends up leaving New York and he relocates to California. I would assume it probably had more to do with the fact that Persico wants him dead for testifying against him than the fact that he can't be a horse jockey. And he does go on to have another career in horse jockeying in California. So I think he just needed to get out of New York. Grillo went on to live a perfectly fine life in California. In 1968, 17 years after he left, he returned to Brooklyn to visit his brother Frank. I guess he thought 17 years was long enough and that everybody would have forgotten that he squealed like a little bitch and that he stood up in court against Al and that Al was still sitting in prison for his testimony. He was wrong. He was found on the floor of the Oceanside Boys Club with four bullet holes in him. Why he thought it was a good idea to not only return to Brooklyn, But to go to a social club is beyond my level of understanding. I don't get it. But he definitely paid the price. So I read this whole situation and I'm like, okay, they got everything completely wrong. That's so weird because it's not even a little similar to the truth. Why does every single media outlet portray it that there was a fight at a park and a tiger? I don't understand. I don't get it. And then I figured it out. The problem is, is that nobody at all in the media or otherwise reports on this situation at all. This is not the situation that everybody's talking about. Even though Carmine is 17 years old, even though he spent like a year in jail waiting for Al to come back, nobody talks about this when they're talking about Carmine Persico. Less than a year prior, Carmine had been picked up with around 50 other young kids in connection with the slang of James Fortunato. And that is what the media is talking about when they're talking about the fight at the park. I just thought it was wild and absolutely impossible that Carmine Persigo could have spent a year in jail and every media outlet that speaks about him just completely dismisses that and doesn't talk about that situation at all whatsoever. So my brain was trying to put it together like, well, this doesn't make any sense. That's why they just pretend that this didn't happen because it wasn't his crime. It was Al's crime. Even though he's the one that caught the bullets, a lot of people don't even report that he was shot in the legs. Like, it's freaking weird. So Fortunato was killed in Prospect Park on May 12, 1950 at 18 years old. He was a member of the Tigers, another street gang in the area. Fortunato was actually a protege of Joe Perfacci, which is another thing that people don't really mention when they talk about this situation. They just kind of like, oh yeah, there was a fight. It was at a park. One person died, one person got stabbed, and it was over a girl. That's all you'll find out if you don't like dig as deep as humanly possible. So what actually happened is two 16-year-old boys, Anthony Scarpati and Dominic Labua, were held without bail in connection to the murder of Fortunato. They were both in the South Brooklyn boys. La was held in connection with the stabbing of Alfred Vento, who was 17 years old, and this happened in the same gang fight. So James Fortunato was killed, and Alfred Vento, 17 years old, he was stabbed multiple times, but he did live. Vento was stabbed in the stomach multiple times, but he was fine. Vento and Fortunato were both in the Tigers. Six other teenagers were held, but they were released. Carmine Persigo, of course, was one of those six. The recounting of the crime says that it was a Friday night and the battle waged between the Tigers and the South Brooklyn's, formerly called the Garfields. And the fight was a fist fight that grew and got out of control because La Bua, a South Brooklyn boy, had called on a girl that lived in tiger territory. So Labua falls in love with this girl. He goes to her house. He asks if she can hang out. But this girl just so happens to live in the tiger territory. Tigers got really mad that somebody from the South Brooklyn boys had gone over into their territory. Each group brings like 15 people and it turns into a free for all. And somebody pulls out a gun, shoots Fortunato and everything devolves leaving one person dead and one person wounded. And both the people that were hurt were tigers. Oddly enough, There was a very similar disposal method of the gun, a thirty-two caliber revolver, as the future murder of Bovey. The gun was thrown into the Gowanus Canal, but this one wasn't ever found. Now, when you're reading broad media about Carmine Persico and you hear that he was arrested at 17 years old in connection with the murder, this is the one that you're gonna hear about. Not the one where he was shot twice in the legs and then he was in a car with his older brother and his older brother offed someone. No, it's this one. That's pretty crazy that the murder of Bovi is like thrown to the wind and nobody even knows about it. Nobody cares about it. Even this murder, I had to search through the depths of hell to find out who was actually killed. Because on a surface search, all you'll find is that there was another teenager that was killed. You won't find out who it actually was that died. Search hard enough and you'll find out that it was a member of the rival Tigers gang. But you do not stumble on names or facts or anything very often when you're researching this shit. You have to literally go out of your way and spend forever digging through the internet to find this stuff. At the age of 16 years old, Carmine Persico had already made his bones in the mafia, which is pretty impressive considering that some of the mafia rats that you all know and for some reason you love, they never once made their bones. So this little 16-year-old kid has a lot over those Bible-thumping losers. Because of this altercation, a lot of people make the argument that the West Side Story was written about Carmine Persigo. West Side Story came out in 1957, and this arrest happened in 1951, so it it's possible. After word of this murder, which had been committed during a gang fight by a kid who had been known to be like a tough little thug forever, Frankie Schatz, about a Marco, heard about it, and he set his sights on Persico. Frankie Schatz was determined to make him a member of his crew. His crew was just a bunch of button guys that officially were operating under the Profaci family, which would later come to be known as the Colombo family. According to Mr. McDonald, who was a former prosecutor, he said that Carmine Persico was only a teenager and small in size, but people took notice of him and they started to fear him even at a young age. By the time he had turned 20 years old, he had been arrested and exonerated on two separate murders. We just went through both. He had a ruthless reputation, and everybody in Brooklyn knew this little street thug. And they knew him as someone that would cut your throat without thinking twice about it. During the early 1950s, Persica was recruited into the Profaci family, which later came to be known as the Colombo crime family. Frankie Shots a Batamarco, a longtime capo in the Profacce family, is mentioned as the person who recruited Persico. Initially, Persico engaged in activities like bookkeeping, bookmaking, taking illegal bets, loan sharking. These are like the common illicit activities that are associated with organized crime, and that's what he's like doing. Over time, Persigo expanded his criminal endeavors to include burglaries, hijackings, like stealing goods, stealing vehicles. He upped the ante over time. During the time he was working under Frankie Shots about a Marco, he was arrested 12 times, but he would only spend a few days in jail. This could imply either a lack of evidence against him or a capacity to evade arrest through legal means or through influence. A lot of mafia guys get away with what they get away with because everybody knows that they'll kill you if you don't shut your mouth. Would have been smart for the Blue Beetle to listen to that information, huh? When he joined the Persico family under Frankie Schatz, Persico started working with Joe Gallo and Gallo's brothers, Albert and Lawrence. Joe Gallo was a prominent figure in New York City Mafia during the 1960s and 70s. I actually already have a video about him, Crazy Joe Gallo, so I'll link it in the description if you're interested and you want to know more about Joe Gallo. None of these guys were known in the Mafia yet, but every single one of them would go on to become known in the Mafia. About Marco is a Bensonhurst bookie who had led the group known as the Garfield Boys. And it looks like Frankie Schatz has the Garfield Boys and the Garfield Boys has like a junior group, which is the South Brooklyn Boys. So it looks like Carmine Persico was in the South Brooklyn Boys doing his little teenage crime thing. And then when he came up into the actual mafia working for the Perfacci family under Frankie Schatz at Marco, he went into the Garfield boys. Now, it looks like all the Gallo brothers were also in the Garfield boys. And the Garfield boys were freaking savages. These guys are known as one of the toughest gangs in the area. And if you think about it, It's not really all that surprising, considering all the Gallo brothers and Persico are in this gang. So, like, think about the crazy shit that these guys are probably doing, knowing each and every individual one of them is a freaking psychopathic savage on their own. The Garfield boys specialized in truck cargo hijackings, loan sharking, illicit sports and numbers betting, and burglary. They just loved their burglary. Police intelligence assessments state that Carmine Persico moved quickly as a dependable, experienced member of the Garfield group, and he definitely built his reputation up during this time. The crew had an apartment on President Street in Brooklyn, which they called the Dormitory, which is where they congregated. At this apartment, Gallo kept Cleo, his pet lion, in the basement. And again, I already made a video about Joe Gallo and this lion and what they did with it. They ended up tying it up in Central Park. It's freaking wild. If you're interested in a crazy story, go watch the Joe Gallo video. It's freaking crazy. Persico married a woman named Joyce Smadon, and they would later have four children together. They had three sons, Michael, Lawrence, and Alphonse, and they had a daughter, Barbara Persico. Barbara would later go on to marry and her new last name would be Piazza. I think it's so funny because the family that Carmine created was literally like a carbon copy of his original family. Three boys, all of whom would go into the mafia, and a daughter who really isn't ever heard of again, just like his sister. So I think it's kind of cool that he just like created the exact thing that he was created from again. Alphonse T. Persico, sometimes referred to as Little Alley Boy or just Alley Boy, was born on February 8, 1954. He would go on to be the crime family's acting leader after his father was imprisoned. The young Alphonse Persico, unlike other several mafiosi, was a bright student and he completed high school and was admitted to St. John's University. He left St. John's after his sophomore year, most likely to work for his father because I think at the time when he left, his father had been imprisoned. Persico joined his father's family as a soldier in his early 20s, and by his mid-20s, he was reportedly a capo. And I'm pretty sure he was running around in the group when he was younger, but he just, like, officially joined in his 20s. Persico loved the vigor and thrill of the mafia life, and he was exactly like his father because his father, Carmine, didn't have to go into the mafia. He wasn't poor. He wasn't forced into it. He just went into it because he loved the glamorization of it, and Alphonse was no different. Alphonse was detained in 1983 on suspicion of possessing heroin, but the charges were later dropped. Michael Persico is the second son of Carmine Persico, and according to research, he was involved in a loan sharking deal, but we can't Fully say if he was like involved in the mafia, but it seems like just like his brother, he found joy in being involved in the mafia. Now I'm going to go a little bit into the family just because I'm interested and I do want to do like a follow up video on one of the people I'm about to talk about. I'll tell you who in a minute, but I just want to kind of go through it. This is like kind of separate from the Carmen Persico video, because I'm just, I'm interested in the next generation. So let's go through it real quick before we move on. So his son, Alley Boy, was sentenced to life in prison. And there's a murder regarding the death of Michael Devine in 1992, after a hitman named Frank Sparacco had ratted him out and said, hey, Alley Boy is the one that killed Divine." Divine, the man that Alley Boy is accused of killing, was found shot to death in a car. Alleyboy reputedly killed him because Divine was dating Persico's wife Teresa during a separation. I don't think he got charged with this crime. I think that he got away with this murder. I don't see anywhere that he went to trial or anything. What I can tell you is that he did go to jail for the murder of his underboss, William Wild Bill Cotolo. I think it's a lot more likely that he went to jail for life for the murder of William Wild Bill Cotolo. So now with Cotolo, Alley Boy had promoted Cotolo to underboss as like a peace gesture. But when Alley Boy was looking at going back into jail for a gun charge, he was convinced that Cotolo was gonna make a power play and try to take boss for himself while Alley Boy went to jail. John Jackie DeRoss and Cotolo were like besties. John Jackie DeRoss, he's just like another mafioso. And their besties, Katolo is the best man at Jackie's wedding. But I guess Jackie and Persico were like hanging out and chatting, and Persico convinced Jackie that Katolo was gonna try to take power for himself. So Jackie is like, "I right, like you. Do what you gotta do. I'm not gonna come back at you or whatever. Do you, bro?" And I'm trying to stay on surface level because I really, really, really want to do this other video. So I'm not going too deep into it, but I just want to kind of show you what I got in very brief. Research. So, Persico summons Catolo to a meeting where Catolo's mechanic dropped him off. Now, Persico, Catolo, Thomas Giogelli, Dino Saracino, and Dino Calabro—they all head to Saracino's house. They go to the basement. They're hanging out, and that's where they killed Wild Bill Catolo. Giogelli buried Catolo at an industrial park in Farmingdale, New York, which is on Long Island. It was reported on December 29th, 2007 that Ali Boy was found guilty of the murder of Wild Bill Cattolo on December 28th, 2007. So the day before he had been found guilty. And that he and Jackie DeRoss had both been found guilty and now face life in prison. Now, I am definitely going to do an entire episode on Wild Bill Cattolo because just doing this small research, I am so interested in this dude. Like, I'm enamored. Actually, there's a TV show called Families of the Mafia, and it's a spinoff of Mob Wives. And if you've watched my channel from the beginning, you know that I was obsessed with Mob Wives, and I loved Families of the Mafia. Now, Families of the Mafia, one of the families that's in the show, and it's like a reality show, and there's four or five different families, and they, like, follow what's going on in their lives. One of the families in the show is the Catolos, and they talk on there about... How somebody supposedly was not guilty of the crime that Persico is in jail for. He didn't commit it and he's trying to get him out of jail. Like there's a whole thing that goes on in the show. I legit stopped recording to try to rewatch the final episode because like I couldn't remember what happened in the families of the mafia actually like the show. But I had to sit through freaking commercials and I'm trying to record so I did it. So what I'm going to do is just put that information into the video that I make on Wild Bill tolo his third son larry did some time for a no-show union job but he got out of jail he's not in jail now and the last time anybody checked he was a pizza delivery man in brooklyn and that was reported in 2016 so i don't know if that's what he's still doing it's not like his life is like widely reported but i would imagine if he did time for a no-show union job he also got involved in the mafia at some point Senior Alley Boy Persico, Carmine's brother, not his son. So his son is the one that went to jail for life for the Katolo murder. His brother Alley Boy died September 14, 1989, of cancer of the larynx at a federal prison in Springfield, Missouri, at 61 years old. Altogether, Carmine Persico had 15 grandchildren, which I think is awesome. Like very cool. Okay, so let's step back away from like modern day and his family because all of the stuff I just was talking about that's all modern day. This was reported in 2016. So I want to go back and back up back up we're back in 1957 now and we're back to karma and story. In 1957, Carmine Persico allegedly participated in the murder of Albert Anastasia. At the time, Anastasia was the former leader of Murder Incorporated, because when he died, Murder Incorporated had already been like put out of commission. A bunch of people had been sent to death row. Murder Incorporated was a long forgotten thing. I did a three-part episode on Albert Anastasia, so if you're interested in him and what led up to his murder, go watch that. I'll link the part one, and then there's links in each of those descriptions for part two and part three. The murder of Albert Anastasia took place on October 25, 1957, at the Park Sheridan Hotel, now known as the Park Central Hotel, in Midtown Manhattan. Albert Anastasia was at a barber shop located inside the hotel. He was receiving a shave and a haircut when two masked gunmen burst in through the shop. They opened fire on Anastasia, killing him instantly. The murder of Albert Anastasia was probably one of the most important events in the history of the American Mafia. It marked a power shift within the organized crime world as the Genovese family, led by Vito Genovese, sought to take control of Anastasia's operations. The killing of Anastasia cleared the way for Genovese to become the dominant force in the New York Mafia. And it also led the way for him to put his little bestie, Carlo Gambino, in control of that family. Again, if you have any interest in all of this, I'm not going back through it. I just did a three-part on Albert Anastasia. Super, super interesting. Loved making that video. That's what made me want to do this part one, two, and three for Karma and Persico. So if you're interested, go check that video out. So something that happens a lot nowadays is that Now that we're in, you know, we're in 2023 and a lot of people will tell you that what is written about the original crimes that it's wrong. Like, I'm not even exaggerating, mostly everybody that you talked to was going to say that, like, oh, this is wrong, that is wrong. I guarantee you, if you talk to any of these, like, big mafia bloggers, at least one of them is going to tell you it wasn't actually Persigo that took out Anastasia. They know better, they have all the answers, and everything everybody else knows is wrong. There's a million theories out there about who the actual shooters were, Honestly, I don't even really care. It really doesn't even matter. But let me tell you something. With how quickly Persico rose through the ranks after the Anastasia hit, there was absolutely no question in the underground world. So you could speculate all you want about who actually did the hit. But the Mafia itself was pretty clear back then who actually did the hit. Carmine was only 24 years old, and he became the youngest man to ever have been given a button, which is just another way of saying becoming a maid man, be given a button, become a maid man, be promoted, whatever, however you want to call it. He was 24, youngest man ever to be given the honor. A lot of men who had been waiting years and years to become maid men resented this little 24-year-old runt who stood at 5'6", had a perpetual ship on his shoulder, and was just like a little thug asshole. And they resented him for being given the button before them. But Persigo's intelligence, along with his willingness to do absolutely whatever it took to handle the situation, just put him in that spot to get that honor before most everybody else. Joseph Gallo made public announcements claiming the hit. He once publicly said, you can call us five the Barbershop Quintet. Obviously, that's referencing the Anastasia hit, It Happened in a Barbershop. When he made that comment, actually, he left out Persigo. He told Sidney Slater, a crime associate and another informer, though not a member of the mafia himself. He just, like, ratted as an outsider's POV, if that makes any sense. So he told Sidney Slater that the quartet comprised of himself, Sonny Cameroon, Ralph Manfrici, Joey Giogelli and Frank Punchy Iliano. It's not surprising that he left out Persico because by the time he had talked to Slater, the rift between Persico and Gallo had become really bad. So I imagine that Gallo wouldn't want to give Persico even a little credit for the work he had done. To be fair, I'd probably do the same thing if I was Joe Gallo. Persico did him dirty. When I made the Joe Gallo video, I was very against Joe Gallo. But in this case, I would have done the same thing. After the Anastasia hit, Carmine and Joe Gallo were both made made men, and they were each given their own crew. So the Garfield boys all went their separate ways. This just means that the crew split up and each of them were given their own crew. It doesn't mean that Joe Gallo and Carmine Persico weren't still BFFs. They were. They were still really, really close. It just means that they weren't in the same crew and there is no more Garfield boys. They all go their separate ways. Or maybe the Garfield boys stayed around and like new people went in. I'm not really sure. I just know that Carmen Persico and Joe Gallo were no longer in the Garfield boys. In the late 1950s, there was a growing discontent among members of the Perfacci crime family. At that time, the family was under the leadership of Joseph Perfacci, a Sicilian born mafia boss who had risen to power during the prohibition time. And he had solidified his position through like all the decades that passed. Perfacci spent a lot of time in power. He was seen as a wealthy and domineering figure within the organization. Two influential factions within the Perfacci family that were, like, really dissatisfied with Perfacci's leadership were one led by Joseph Gallo and one led by Joseph Colombo. They were each supported by Karma and Persico. Persico is friends with both of these guys. The Gallo faction included Larry, Albert, and Joe Gallo, and Persico kind of fell into that faction. He was a lot closer with the Gallos. And that faction felt that Perfacci demanded excessively high payments, which are known as tribute or kickbacks from the people below him. Perfacci's alleged wealth and extravagant lifestyle, it really, it grew a lot of resentment within the ranks of the family. He was perceived as living this wealthy, extravagant, aristocratic life, while a lot of his soldiers and associates struggled to make ends meet. It was well known that he contributed through the frickin' nose to the church. So he would just donate, donate, donate. But the people under him, they were having a hard time living. Some of those people were going to the church to get food. It just wasn't really working out or adding up for them. This discontentment got a lot worse after the Anastasia hit. Because you got crazy Joe Gallo out there, and he's expecting to be like lavished in jewels and diamonds for killing this Mafia boss. And Perfacci is like, aye, good job, nice, nice job. So like he doesn't really give a crap that he did this big hit. When Persico and Gallo's first got into the Mafia, they originally joined under Frankie Schatz about a Marco. And Frankie Schatz actually recruited Persico himself. Frankie Schatz ran the Garfield crew, and the Gallows and Persico started and really thrived within the Garfield crew. At Battle Marco got into the Mafia in 1928 under Perfacci, and he got in right around the time that Frankie Yale died. He was like a chunky dude. He had no hair. He had hooded eyes. So like not exactly what you would imagine a Mafia member to be. He and his family grew up in red hook alongside the Gallo family and they like grew up as neighbors they always knew each other so it wasn't really a surprise that when the gallows got their foot in the door in the mafia it was under frankie shots frank and his brother michael or mike shots about a marco were in the mafia during prohibition and they raked in millions during the prohibition and in the bootlegging industry they worked below frankie yale And when Yale was killed, his crew was evenly distributed to Joe the Boss Masseria and Perfacci. His brother actually ended up refusing to join a new family. He was pissed when Frankie Yale died. And his brother was like, nah, I don't want to be handed off to another crew. He ended up being killed in October of 1928. Frankie didn't resist the new family. He ended up obviously in the Perfacci family. And he quickly gained a good reputation in the Perfacci family. His ability to earn money as an illegal gambler made him skyrocket in the ranks. The reason I said in the beginning of the episode that it's a big deal if you're Sicilian is that Joe the Boss Masseria, one of the big things with Joe the Boss was he was Sicilian and he did not want to work with anybody that wasn't Sicilian. So when I said it kind of matters that Persico isn't Sicilian, it doesn't surprise me that he ended up going in the Perfacci family and below Marco, because this is a non-Sicilian faction. When Frankie's son, Anthony Tony Schatz Marco got medboarded from the Marines in 1945, Frankie brought his son, Tony Schatz, in to work with him in his crew. And his son started to rise through the ranks as well. He did some stints in prison before becoming involved in organized crime. He ended up doing two years in Atlanta federal prison for selling morphine. All of his arrests that took place after getting involved in the mafia would lead to acquittals until 1952. He became a capo in the 1940s and his main niche was illegal gambling, just like his dad. And this boy raked in money for his family, like a lot of money. So these people, they're making a lot of money. And when you make a lot of money for the family, you usually get pretty big of a voice in the family. The crew was all arrested together on March 25th, 1952. Frankie Shots of Batamarco, his son Tony Shots, Joe and Larry Gallo, and Carmine Persico, who was 18 years old at the time, were all arrested for racketeering. At the time, the Special Racket Squad reported that this little gang of five people was earning about $2.5 million a year, which is $7,000 a day for my numbers, people. From the numbers racket, a lottery that they were running. When the crew paid their tributes up to the boss, it was typically paid in $1 bills because, like, that's all they had. Because that's the numbers racket, it's a lottery, it's an illegal lottery, but people would pay in $1 bills. So they come up like strippers, like, with these $1 bills. Both shots boys pled guilty and they got a year in jail, but everybody that pled not guilty ended up walking away with no charges. By the time the crew had been arrested, Anthony was listed as the number two man in the crew. Interesting fact, did you know that the lottery that we know and love today was taken from the mafia? Yeah, they shut down the mafia's number racket, took it for themselves and called it a voluntary tax. The New York lottery is North America's largest and most profitable lottery. It contributes about $3.6 billion a year to education and that's all because they took it over from the mafia. So anyway, now you got this powder keg that's about to go off. Perfacci is charging more in tribute than any of the other bosses. And on top of requiring a percentage of the jobs, which is usually how the bosses get paid, like you go out and let's say you make $100, you kick up five, you kick up like 5% of your jobs. And that's usually how the bosses collect. But on top of requiring that percentage, Profaji is requiring a $25 monthly fee from every single member of the family, regardless of how bad they're doing. The soldiers on the streets are really, really hurting, and Frankie Schatz has a pretty solid team around him. It's solid enough that he feels comfortable making a move that everybody in the family wants to make, but doesn't because they're scared. He stops paying tribute to Perfacci. He turns around to Perfacci, and he's like, yeah, listen, like, I don't make enough money. I have nothing to give you, so I'm not paying you anymore. And this wasn't even fully a lie. Frankie had some bad luck lately, as a lot of his business locations had been subject to law enforcement raids. And he is at this point hemorrhaging money because this is around the time that they are stepping in and taking away all the illegal lotteries so that they could take it for themselves. Now, Frankie is performing this little strike, but he's not the original. He's not the one that started it. Honestly, he's kind of doing it as, like, a hanger-on. It was Crazy Joe Gallo that initially started it. He started denying tribute altogether. And Frankie saw him doing that, and he's like, yeah, bro, like, I'm gonna support you. I got your back 100% of the way. I got you. So, like, he's having money issues. He can't afford to pay the tribute, and instead of... Being like, yeah, I'm not going to pay on my own. He's like, oh, Gallo's not paying? You're my friend. I got your back. I'm going to do the same. So Gallo had been denying payment for a lot longer than Frankie had at this point. It's always dangerous not to pay tribute up to the boss. It always is. The boss always gets paid. But usually this isn't kill situation. This is a have meetings, figure out what can be done, get taxed, that kind of stuff. It's not a people die kind of situation. People don't get killed for stupid little squabbles about tribute. The Gallo brothers all urged Frankie to stand strong and not make any payments because they weren't and they wanted another person to be there with them. They're not paying either. The entire crew had gone on strike and nobody had been making payments since the beginning of 1959. Why Frankie Schatz was the one that was singled out, I'm not sure. I guess he was like the one that was most easily sacrificed, maybe the least well known around town. I really don't know why it was him. He wasn't the first one to do it. He wasn't the one that was making the most money. I don't know why it was him, but it was him. On November 4th, 1959, Frankie Schatz went to a saloon called the Cardiello's Tavern, a local tavern that had been owned and operated by his cousins, which is now operated as the Gowanus Gardens. Which, P.S., that place looks super cute. I'm going to go there sometime over the next week, and if I do, I'll include pictures. I don't know. I might be bluffing. I I don't know. I want to go. But they're crazy for not advertising that they're a mafia hit establishment. That shit gains instant success and notoriety, and I honestly don't know if the owners even know that this happened in the building that they opened and are operating a restaurant in. They opened up in 2019, and I can't find anywhere that they're like, hey, mafia hit happened here. I I don't think they know. As he's walking out of the tavern, he starts getting shot at. Two shots go off outside the tavern, one goes into him and one goes through the bar door. He races back inside where the two mysterious shooters, donned in pre-Castellano, fedoras and top coats, follow him inside and put six more bullets into him, and they obviously kill him instantly. I say pre-Castellano because this is exactly what they did with Castellano. They did the whole dressing up thing. This happened first, so it's pre-Castellano, but very Castellano vibes. At the time that he was killed, Frankie Shots debt to Perfashi was around $50,000. The hit order for Frankie Schatz and Tony Shot's about Marco was handed to Joe Gallo, and supposedly Joe Gallo refused it. While it sent a message to Perfacci that the hit was refused, Gallo said that he couldn't do it because he was Blood Brothers with Frankie's son, Anthony. They have been accused of actually doing the hit. A lot of people think that it was the Gallos that did the hit on Frankie Shots, But it's a lot more widely believed that it was actually Persico who accepted and executed the hit. After killing Frankie Shots, Perfacci hits up the crew and he's like, yo, I still want Tony Shots. Like they only managed to get Frankie he still wants Tony. Tony shots, knowing that his dad just died and he's next, goes way the fuck underground, and nobody can find him. Nobody has any idea where he is. But while he's underground, he vows to get revenge on those who killed his father and are now after him. So now Crazy Joe Gallo's out there and he is planning to take over a business. Whether he killed Frankie or not, it really doesn't even matter at this point. Like, it doesn't matter. Gallo's out here and he's either like, I killed Frankie, I earned these rackets, I'm taking them. Or he's out here like, Frankie was my friend, he was my boy, someone killed him, and I'm taking his rackets. Either way, it really doesn't matter why he's doing it. He's trying to take up out of Marco's business. Perfachi still has not gotten his hands on Tony Shots, and he hears that Gallo is trying to take Frankie's rackets by force, and he issues a hit on Gallo. Either way, whether it was Persico or Gallo that actually killed Frankie Shots, it really doesn't matter because whoever it was got screwed real hard. Perfachi had promised Frankie's rackets as payment for whoever took Frankie out to either the Gallo's or to Persico. And if Persico did it, it was probably the same, whether it was Gallo or Persico. Either way, Perfacci turned around and took the business that Frankie used to have and handed it over to his relatives instead of handing it over as payment for the hit, which he had initially promised. Now, when a hit is put out on your head, what do you typically do? Typically, people, they'll like, you know, go underground, they'll keep quiet, not really try to fuck with anyone. What does crazy Joe Gallo decide to do? He goes and abducts one of Perfacci's brothers. This may be the thing that Joe Gallo is most well known for. On February 27th, 1961, Joe Gallo and his brothers kidnapped four of the top men in the Perfacci family, underboss Joseph Maglioccio. Frank Perfacci, Joe Perfacci's brother, Salvatore Musaccia, a capo, and John Scamone, a soldier. Joe Perfacci and John Johnny Bath Beach Otto were both supposed to be a part of the group that ended up getting kidnapped. But Otto fled to Florida to evade the kidnapping, and Perfacci entered into a hospital under an assumed name and had surgery in order to evade capture. Larry and Albert Gallo sent Joe to California so that they could handle the hostage situation, because Joe is crazy. There's a reason he's called Crazy Joe Gallo. Joe wanted to kill one of the hostages to like prompt Perfacci to pay, and he wanted to demand $100,000 before negotiations even began. But Larry overruled him, and they were like, you know what, you go to California, you go handle this and let us handle this because you're out of your goddamn mind. Unfortunately for Joe, he wouldn't be able to see the hostage situation play out all the way through because he was arrested as his brothers held the hostages. Knowing that an all-out war was about to break out on the streets, police went and they revoked Gallo's bail on a prior charge of coercion from June of 1960. And eventually, he was sentenced to 14 years in prison for a truck hijacking, so they picked him up while these guys were still in their hands and they kept him until the whole situation had blown over because the cops they know that somebody is kidnapped they know all this stuff is going down and they don't want to see a war go down so they picked up joe they're like hey you have this prior charge of coercion he is out on bail they're like we're taking your bail away we're getting you off the streets and then he stayed in jail for the coercion charge until he went on trial for the truck hijacking and then he got 14 years on that so he was picked up while these guys were still kidnapped and he did not see the light of day until 15 years later the coercion charge was pertaining to rocco sapino a brooklyn tavern owner and gallo had threatened him because gallo wanted to install jukeboxes from his company and he pretty much threatened rocco and was like hey if you don't put my jukebox in your tavern, I'm going to take all the people from the paper union and I'm gonna make them picket outside of your establishment and pretty much we're shutting your restaurant down if you don't put this illegal jukebox in your tavern. So he went and squealed and now there's a coercion charge on Gallo. Now with Crazy Joe out of the way, the remaining Gallo brothers were easily able to make peace and they were able to bring the hostage situation to a close and everybody walked away, nobody died, no one was killed, everyone was fine. Joe Perfacci, along with his consigliere, Charles the Sige Lo Cicero, made a deal for the peaceful surrender of the hostages after they had been in captivity for weeks. This went on for a long time. During negotiations to hand over the hostages, Perfachi agreed to keep the peace as long as everybody was kept safe. So he's like, all right, if you keep everybody safe and you don't kill anyone, even after this is over, I'm not going to come after you. I agree to, you know, once this is over, everybody can, you know, just go back to business as usual. No hard feelings, nothing. But we all know Perfachi, and he is not about to take this laying down. Perfacci is not a good boss. He is not somebody that holds up his end of the bargain. If he says something, it really doesn't mean anything. There's no word is bond with Perfacci. He sucks. On August 20th, 1961, Perfacci ordered the murder of Larry Gallo and Joseph Joe Jelly Geo Jelly, another member of Gallo's crew. Joe Jelly was what they called a roly-poly, a short and fat man who got the nickname Jelly not only from his last name, but from like the jiggly way his belly flopped. He was a little fatty. Geo Jelly was a member of the Garfield Boys and he came up with the whole crew. Everybody was really, really close with him. When the crew split and the Gallows and Persigos got their buttons and went their separate ways, Geo Jelly went with the Gallows and became a member of Joe's crew sally d a former marine that had served with geo jelly in the past and current owner operator of a fruit stand on avenue u invited geo jelly to come deep sea fishing with him for the day now jelly is like all about it he <laughs> like who wouldn't be down for a day on the boat with the boys he's down outside of serving together they regularly played craps together sally was in the life so there's really nothing to be concerned about and there's no threats out there perfaci had said that he was keeping the peace nobody thinks they're in danger so yeah he's all about deep sea fishing they had a 32 foot boat which they took out on sheep's head bay and when they got out of sight of the pier everybody on board ganged up and killed geo jelly They cut off his arms and legs, put everything in a barrel, threw it overboard into the bay, and nobody ever saw or heard from Geo Jelly again. In another scene from The Godfather, on August 25th, 1961, a drive-by was performed. And this one didn't kill anyone, didn't even try to hurt anybody, but it got a message across. A package was thrown at a family restaurant of the Gallows. It was called Jackie's and the package contained Jelly's clothing and a newspaper. The newspaper was wrapped around a dead fish, and it was clear what the message was. Joe Jelly now sleeps with the fishes. Carmine Persico, who had killed Anastasia with Joe Gallo and got into the mafia in a gang with the Gallo brothers, attempted to strangle Larry to death. He and Salvatore Sally D'Ambrosio invited Larry to come hang out with them and have a drink with them at the Sahara Club in East Flatbush, New York. A random NYPD officer is walking down the street and he sees that the door for the bar is open. And it's a Sunday morning. It's early. And the cop's like, well, that's weird. Why the hell is this door open? So he pops his head in and he's like, hey, is everybody all right? Is everything okay? Why the hell is this door open? Just by doing that, this cop had interfered with the planned assassination of Larry and Larry lived. You can watch this murder attempt play out scene for scene as it happened in Godfather 2, another movie that Persigo's life had a pretty huge impact on. I think that the way that a lot of these guys get their life put on the big screen isn't the way that you think. They're not just like sitting around shooting the shit with like a big time Hollywood producer and then the stuff that they say gets used. No, it's more like, do you remember in The Sopranos when Chris is sitting there and he's telling stories about people that he knows on the streets and he's telling stories to this director and then this director writes that situation into the script it's more like that it's not carmine persigo going to a director and be like oh yeah this one time i did this no it's just like stories because these events are infamous a lot of people know about them and then they get brought to a director like even in passing conversation gets written into a script and it turns into a movie So you're writing a movie about somebody's life, and you never have a conversation with that person. Guys on the street hear stories about what happened on the street. It becomes legend, and it's like, you know, a rumor, and it's something that just gets brought up. All of a sudden, it's a movie. So when I say Persico's life is portrayed in Godfather or in West Side Story, it doesn't mean that Persigo had absolutely anything to do with the movie or the play or the guys who made it. It just means that his name and the situations he was involved in were talked about a lot on the streets. Although Persigo had previously been on Gallo's side against Perfacci, and they were their own little crew between the Gallos and the Persigos, once Persigo tried to kill Larry, the Gallos started calling Persigo the snake. And that's where he got his nickname, Carmine the Snake Persico, which is probably what he's most well known for. After the murder of Geo Jelly and the attempted murder of Larry Gallo, it lit flames for a gang war. And it came to be known as the First Columbo War, or the first of multiple Gallo Wars. Nine people were murdered and three people went missing. The Gallo crew fighting a whole war without their number one gunner because Joe Gallo is in prison, they hid in the dormitory while war raged on the streets. Later, Persigo was indicted for the attempted murder of Larry, but when Larry refused to testify, all charges were dropped against him. Tony Shots came out of hiding two years after the death of his father. He hadn't been hiding with the gallows. He actually blamed the Gallows at first, and let's face it, more than likely it was the Gallows that killed his father. More than likely it was the Gallows. Crazy Joe Gallo didn't get his nickname on accident, and there is no loyalty or ties to anybody. They have no problem flipping on their best friend. If there's a racket bringing in $7,000 a day and he has a chance to take that over, I can totally see him killing his longtime best friend and mentor in a second. So it makes sense that he did it and Tony can see that as well. On August 20th, 1961, Tony Schatz came out of hiding to meet up with Perfacci. He made a deal with Perfacci because he wanted to see the gallows taken down. So he worked with Perfacci to set up this hit on Larry Gallo, and then it gets interrupted by some cop who was just passing on the street, and Larry Gallo lives, knowing exactly who tried to kill him and telling anybody who will listen. Now, when this cop comes in, everybody's like, oh, fuck, this is bad. we gotta run. Sergeant Edward J. Meager, the cop that had walked in just as the attempt on Larry's life had just gotten started, calls for backup as the four men rush past him to exit the building. Because this man, like, literally walks in the door and sees somebody being strangled. Someone has a rope around someone's neck. So Meager is like, oh, shit, this is bad, starts yelling. He's, like, yelling into his radio. He's telling his partner outside, like, yo, this is bad, bad shit's happening. And now these four men are running past him to try to get out of the building, trying to get to a white Cadillac that is waiting outside. Now, Officer Melvin Belly, his partner, is sitting in the patrol car outside of the bar. Meager is yelling to Belly like, yo, something bad just happened. A crime just took place. And all Belly sees is these four dudes trying to flee and get into this white Cadillac. He tries to stop them. He gets out of his car and he's trying to not let them flee. And in his attempts to stop them, he ends up getting shot in the face. As the white caddy speeds off, a man falls out of the car. Nobody knows if he was like thrown or pushed out, but somehow this man exits the Cadillac. John Scamone, Perfacci's personal chauffeur and bodyguard, ended up expelled onto the street from the caddy. He was indicted on the shooting of Belly along with Tony Schatz, and it's said that he was the one who actually lured Larry into the Sahara on that fateful day. Belly identifies Tony Schatz as the shooter, and Tony is charged with the attempted murder of a police officer. Later, Belly's memory changed, and he was unsure who had shot him. Abadamarco was about to be acquitted, but the murder of Joey Maggs put a hold on that. Joseph, Joey Maggs, was an early casualty of the Gallo Wars. He was killed while he was on his way to visit his mother in front of the college restaurant in Brooklyn. Before this, he had lived an entire life of crime. He was a Marine with a lengthy arrest record and 11 arrests under his belt. He served time for armed robbery, all the mafia trappings he served time for. He was arrested on May 20th, 1947 at the Lindbrook Railroad Station for possessing an automatic pistol. He was suspected of carrying out a stickup, robbing and beating Mrs. Rose Nicholson of St. Albans, a ticket agent at the Lindbrook Railroad Station on May 18th. Back in December of 1950, Joey Maggs pled guilty to third-degree robbery charge along with three other men, Charles DeMeo, Vincent Connors, and Roy Minicini. On October 5th, 1961, a quiet Thursday night on Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, Magnasco went to the college restaurant at 224 Fourth Avenue to have a coffee. Four men that he was with sat in the car outside waiting for him to finish up. He left the restaurant, and headed down over towards his mom's house when a man exited a black sedan and shot him three times at close range. He was pronounced dead on the street at 36 years old. A stolen black sedan was recovered a few blocks over with bullet holes in the back windshield, so it looks like the four dudes that Mags was with at least fought back. Joey, Larry, and Albert Gallo were brought in 15 minutes after the murder and held and questioned about their knowledge of this murder. They were the primary and main suspects in the killing. Eight of their men were also called in for questioning. Newspapers reported that his murder was in connection to the Gallo Wars, an ongoing battle for supremacy between Joe Perfacci and all of the Gallo brothers. Joey Maggs was a cousin of Anthony Schatz Abadamarco, who was arrested in August of 1961 for the attempted murder of Larry Gallo along with Persigo? So Anthony Schatz about a Marco is with Perfacci and they're trying to take out Larry Gallo in August of 1961. It was his wife, Lucille, who first spotted and identified Joey Maggs on the street as her cousin. Like, she was like, oh shit, that's that's my cousin. That's Joey Magnasco. Who knows what the hell happened between the incident on August 20th and this incident in October? But whatever the hell happened, it ended up with Tony shots flipping over and getting behind the Gallo crew. On August 20th, 1961, he's arrested for shooting a cop in the face while fleeing the scene of the attempted murder of Larry Gallo. On August 4th, 1961, he's arrested at the Direct Vending Corporation location a headquarters that the Gallows used for their clubhouse at 51 President Street. Larry and Joe Gallo were arrested with him along with nine other men 15 minutes after Joseph Joey Mag's Magnasco, Anthony Schatz's cousin was murdered. So that means that in August, he's trying to kill Larry Gallo. And then by October, only two months later, he's hanging out with the Gallows at their clubhouse. Police went and announced that there was a common denominator in all this mayhem that's playing out. And it's Carmine Persico, who was arrested and held on $25,000 bail. An NYPD official commented, There's one man who's involved in both the try on Larry and the killing of Magnasco. He's Carmine Persico, 27. He's one of the guys who was putting the rope around Larry's neck. And he's behind the killing of Magnasco. They go on to say, He's thrown his lot in with Perfacci and he's picked what police be to be the winning side in this underworld struggle for control. To the horror of police officers who did everything they could to convince the public that the mafia is filled with filthy, no good, low down, dirty gangsters and nothing more. A few months later, we've got a bunch of mafia dudes in the paper for being the good guys. Tony Schatz. Larry and Albert Gallo, Frank Punchy Iliano, Leonard Dello, Alfonso Serentino, and John Camarado ran into a burning building on January 31st, 1962 to rescue children that were trapped in the building on the third floor. All in all, six children were rescued, and they told the newspaper, we'll probably get locked up for putting a fire out without a license. Obviously they're like joking around. So that means that after the October arrest, after Joey Mags' death, Tony Schatz stayed with the gallow camp. If he was just like hanging out with them when this building goes up in flames and they go rescue it, that means that Tony Schatz, he had a part in killing his cousin and then stayed on the side of the gallows. So I'm going to stop here. That's going to be the end of part one of Carmine Persico. Thanks so much for watching and stay tuned for next week when I do part two of Carmine Persico and we go through the next part of his life. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, comment, follow, do all the things. And I will see you next week. Bye.